Well, good morning, Rock Point. Probably all of us at one time or another have filled out an application like this one. Maybe it was a job application. Maybe it was an application to join the military, perhaps go to college. But whatever it was, looking back on it, you can now see that that application significantly impacted your life. Well, this was one of those kinds of applications for me. A little over 17 years ago, my wife and I, Edie, we believed that the Lord was leading us into full-time ministry. And this application was an application to join the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. And we were going to be working for the marriage ministry of Crew as missionary staff. And what that meant was is that if we were accepted, then the next step would be to raise our own financial support. And it was, it was definitely a moment of stepping out on faith. And even though we were, we were afraid, there was fear involved, we truly believed that God was leading, and because he was leading, that he would provide. And provide he did, um, in a miraculous way, actually. But that's the subject of another sermon. But as I look back on it, what actually scared me the most was not that, It was question number 20 on this application. It was a simple yes or no question. But I knew that if I answered this question right here, that it would negatively impact my marriage and perhaps even our ministry. I get back to question number 20. This morning... We want you to know that our vision here at Rock Point for every married couple is to have a thriving, lifelong, God-honoring marriage. That's a deeply held value, as Ron mentioned here at Rock Point. And it's one of the reasons that we have a spring marriage emphasis every year. And so our theme for the marriage emphasis and for my message this morning is becoming, becoming your best us. And it's this idea of two becoming one, of two growing closer together over time as opposed to growing apart. And so this morning, I want to try and connect some some dots for you. I want to talk about two passages in Scripture that will directly impact your marriage. And I want to connect the the spiritual side of, of marriage to a to a growing body of research on how to have a thriving marriage that lasts a lifetime. And so this morning, I want to try and convince you of two truths. The first is, is that the first casualty of sin was marriage relationships. Now, this shouldn't be new information to you. We've heard, we've gone through the Genesis twice with respect to the videos, and the videos suggested that in the first part of Genesis, that was part of what Genesis was about. And the second truth is that a thriving marriage requires commitment and intentionality. So look at, let's look at this first truth. The first casualty of sin was marriage relationships. Genesis chapter 2 records the very first wedding in history. And God has put Adam out into the garden and he said, you need to name the animals. And somewhere in that process, God allows Adam to self-discover something, that there's nothing like him, that he's lonely. 
And we pick up the story in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, what we have here is, is a bit of a translation problem because the, the, English, the English is not giving us the sense of excitement, of emotion that was in Adam's words. And so come back with me for a moment to the garden. Adam has just woke up and God said, you stand. In fact, why don't you stand up here? Um, I'll be back. I, I've made something for you while you were sleeping. I've got a gift for you. And he goes and he gets Eve and he brings Eve as he's walking through the garden. And Adam, he sees Eve for the first time. <laughs> he says, whoa, whoa, man, whoa, man, God, thank you, I'll take her, wrap her up. No, actually, don't wrap her up. I, I like her just the way she is. <laughs> and now we know the emotion behind the words. And the look on his face it's the same look I saw when I attended Jake and, and, and Amanda's wedding a few weeks ago. I always turn when people are watching the bride, I always turn and watch the groom. Because the look on his face, it's always a glimpse of the same look, I think, that was on Adam's face. When he sees this gift that, I, that God has created just for him. Well, the first wedding closes with these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's focus on this last sentence for just a moment, because that's kind of a curious verse, don't you think? I mean, why did God feel compelled to tell us this? Is this like Bible trivia? They're naked? And what's this unashamed part? Well, it's critical for us to understand where we are in the Bible. We have just read the last chapter in the Bible before sin enters the world in chapter 3. Because you see, all of us, all of our marriages, they're all chapter 3 marriages. They're not chapter 2 marriages. All of our marriages were born in chapter 3. Well, chapter 3 tells the story of how Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And we pick up their story in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now stop right there for just a moment, because the next verse you're going to see the next verse is after sin has now entered the world. And the next verse says, and then the eyes of, bo- then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Some translations say it this way. Suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness And so something has just happened here. 
You see it in the cartoon that we've been showing about what each book of the Bible is about. Together, and now there's a barrier. There's a barrier between them. And whatever has caused that barrier, it's caused them to cover up, to be apart. Well, we find out what the barrier is in the next few verses. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And so now... Now we can look back into chapter 2. And although we didn't know it at the time, what we can now see is that there were no barriers to oneness in chapter 2. There were no barriers to sexual intimacy, which is the way we guys typically use the word intimacy. There were no barriers to relational or emotional intimacy, which is the way, guys, our wives typically are going to use the word But in chapter 3 marriages, we can now see one of the many barriers that sin has produced. We can see the fear of rejection, the fear of not being loved, for being accepted for who I really am. And so I find it helpful for us to spell intimacy this way. To give a full sense of the word of what we're speaking of, it is in To me, you see. Because you see, for the very first time, fear has now entered into the relationship between the man and between the woman, and also between mankind and God. As a result of the fear from what the other would see, if they look too deeply into me, you see, they covered up. If God only knew what I'm really like or what I've done, he he won't love me. If my spouse only knew my inadequacies, how I feel inside, my insecurities with my looks, the way I do my job, the way I I preach, would, would she love me? The problem of sin has now introduced barriers into God's plan for oneness. And the barrier list is long. This is just the short list because it just goes on and on. The first casualty of sin was marriage relationships. And so here's the so what. Here's the application of that. And that is this, is that if you don't understand that the root of all marriage problems is first a spiritual problem, if you don't understand how your sin is damaging your marriage relationship, then when problems arise, you're never going to go looking for the spiritual answer. One of the consistent patterns we see with healthy couples is that each individual spouse draws a circle around just themselves and they fix, they fix everybody in their circle. Psalms 139 sums this up well. It says, search Edie, O God, and know her heart. Test her and know her 
thoughts. Show her all of the offensive ways that I've been praying to you about and leave me in the way everlasting. Huh? That's the Sanders revised household version. I'll bet you've got one in your house too, don't you? That's exactly how we tend to think of it, but that's not what it says. It says, search me, lead me, test me, show me. And so the question I want you to begin to think about this morning for your own marriage is this. Is it safe? Is it safe for my spouse to stand naked and unashamed in front of me? Is the environment that I create by my words, by my actions, by my inactions, by my tone, by my listening, is that an environment that allows them to practice into me, you see? Or do they feel like that they need to cover up, to defend? Is it safe? In other words, what I'm asking you is to ask God, God, will you please show me? Show me what it's like to be married to me. Well, let me tell you what it was like to be married to me. Question number 20 on the application asks this. Have there been, ever been any incidents of infidelity by either you or your spouse? Yes or no? Please explain. You see, the answer to the question was yes on my part early in our marriage. But the problem was that Edie didn't know. And I just couldn't bring myself to begin our ministry based on a lie. And so I gulped. I checked yes on the application, and I went and told Edie. At the time, I thought, okay, this is going to be tough. This is going to create a barrier in our our marriage. But I also thought it wouldn't be insurmountable because at the time, we had a strong marriage. We had a good marriage, and this happened a long time ago. But I had forgotten one thing. The one thing is, is that a healthy marriage, one of the pillars is a pillar called trust. And trust is a lot like a jar of marbles. A jar of marbles that you have a jar and you've breached the jar. And what happens is is all of the marbles come spilling out on the floor. And so all of the marbles that I'd spent 17 years putting in that jar, they were all bouncing around on the floor. And a barrier sprung up in our relationship, in our into me, you see. And Edie... Edie was left with a choice. Was her commitment strong enough to hold her? In a marriage that had just gone from very satisfying to very unsatisfying. Fortunately for us, it was. And we both, we rolled up our sleeves. And we did everything we knew to do to rebuild our marriage. But we just couldn't get past this this trust barrier that had sprung up. And ultimately, what you would have seen were two exhausted people just sitting at the base of this impenetrable wall that was between us. And I remember saying to Edie one day, I refuse to quit, but I refuse to live like this any longer. And so we're going to go for help. And we did. We went and we found a marriage counselor who who didn't have the fog of pain and emotion, and she helped us get through that, that impenetrable barrier. 
Well, looking back on what helped us get through that trust barrier was the spiritual side of our marriage. It was, it was the commitment. It was the refusal to quit. It was remembering our vows, which that commitment then in turn drove intentionality. We couldn't quit, but we sure couldn't stay the way we were, and so we had to go for help. Edie and I have now been married for a little over 36 years. We've been involved in marriage ministry for about 25 years, and we've seen many, many different kinds of barriers in marriage. In our own experience and years of asking the question, how do you make marriage work has led us to this. The answers to marriage are found in God's Word. That shouldn't be a surprise because He invented the institution of marriage. But we also want you to know this, that over the last 20 years or so, there has now been just a huge amount of marriage research that's been conducted that amplifies what God's been telling us in His Word for thousands of years. And it shouldn't be any surprise that over and over and over again, the marriage research points to the importance of two biblical truths that we see in Scripture. Be committed and be intentional. So let's take a quick look at how this plays out in our own marriage and what the research shows. And so I want you to think about your own marriage for just a moment. And I want you to go back to that day, that newly married day, your wedding. And I want you to think about your marriage mentally, and I want you to assign yourself a score. How satisfied were you at the beginning, and how committed were you? Well, most would say, well, that was about a nine or a ten. I mean, we were crazy in love, and we said until death do us part. What's your score mentally? I want you to now think about your marriage and fast-forwarding it to today. What's your score today? How satisfied are you? How committed are you? Mentally, I want you to think about that score. Ten being the highest. What is it? And now I want you to do one more thing. I want you to fast forward five years, maybe ten years into the future. What score do you think you're going to have in the future? What's the future look like for your marriage? What score do you give yourself? Mentally, think about that. What, what's your number? Well, here's what the research shows. Virtually everyone starts out the same, happy and committed. But over time, you begin to see differences in couples' satisfaction levels and in their commitment levels. And three distinctive patterns begin to emerge. You'd see couples that could be characterized as highly satisfied and highly committed. They're the couples that are very intentional in growing their marriage across all stages of life. And they say, divorce? Divorce is not an option. Murder, on the other hand, maybe, (laughs) but not divorce. You see another group, that's the unsatisfied and the committed group. And basically, they're not very happy, but the odds are that they're not going to wind up leaving each other because their commitment is holding them. There's another group, the unsatisfied and the uncommitted The prospect of one or both leaving is brought up over and over again, and often one does. So researchers began to look at how do we all start out here, but over time wind up over here? Well, one of the reasons that 
marital satisfaction starts out so high is because the infatuation stage hasn't worn off. My counseling professor at seminary, he called it the juiced brain phase. And basically it lasts about 18 months, maybe two years. Your brain chemistry is actually different. And the juiced brain causes us to do things naturally that are good for the relationship. We practice into me, you see. You go, what does that look like? Well, you remember sitting and talking for hours, maybe in the driveway about your relationship? But the problem is the juice wears off. And when the juice wears off, we return to normal. And guess what normal is? Normal is a return to focusing on the most important person in the world. That's right, me. Because you see, couples don't just automatically fall out of love. It's an erosional process. And once the juice is gone, unless you start to make intentional us choices about your relationship, your default, your me choices will lead to an erosion in your marriage. And it's that erosion that leads to unsatisfying marriages. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that the key to having a thriving marriage that lasts a lifetime is like a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin, it's written, be intentional about the right things across a lifetime. And on the other side of the coin, it's written, be committed. One of the best books that has been written on marriage in quite some time just came out. It's by Ted Lowe. It's called Your Best Us. Fits with the theme. Some of you may recognize that name because he and his wife were here at Date Night Comedy just back in October. They were the MCs, And I really like the way Ted describes what's going on here. Here's what he says. He says, the us mindset is asking, what am I doing to make this marriage work? But the me mindset, the me mindset is constantly asking, is this marriage working for me? And he sums it up this way. He says, what are these highly satisfied couples doing that's different from everybody else. And here's what he says. They practice their promise over a lifetime. Here's what the research shows in my own experience bears this out. A high percentage, about 80% actually, of divorces occur because the spouses grew apart. They lost a sense of closeness. They didn't feel loved and appreciated. Why? Because at some point along the way, maybe they never started or some point, they stopped being intentional about growing their marriage. And as a result, their me marriage habits caused a disconnection of their us. Instead of one us gradually over time, you began to see two me's. So truth number two is this, that a thriving marriage requires commitment and intentionality. So where do we see this idea in scripture? Well, on the commitment side, we've talked about this many times. Scripture calls marriage a covenant relationship. And just one example, Jesus Speaking in Matthew chapter 19, he says, God intended marriage to last a lifetime. 
But this morning, I want to turn the coin around and I want to talk about the intentionality side of marriage. Where do we see that in Scripture? Well, I want to go take a look at one particular passage, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 32. In chapter 7, Paul has turned the corner, and he's now beginning to respond to questions that he received from the Corinthian church. And in this passage, Paul is contrasting singleness with being married. Paul is saying there's a difference between singleness on the one hand and being married on the other as it relates to serving the Lord. And so we pick it up at verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, at first glance, you might be thinking, that's kind of a poor passage to use on marriage, isn't it? I mean, Paul kind of seems to prefer singleness to being married. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here at all. You see, I think what Paul is trying to tell us is simply this, is that if you're single, you will be anxious, or other translations use the word concerned. You will be concerned about doing things to please the Lord. And if you're married, you also, you will be concerned about doing things to please the Lord. That's a given. But all Paul is saying is, but hey, for the married folks, I want you to understand, for you, you have a double duty. Because you see, marital obligations take time and energy. Now notice this passage. This passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. What does that mean? It just means that Paul is not commanding us. He's not commanding us to please our spouse. He's not commanding us to please God. Why is that? I think it's because for Paul, it's a given. It's a given that a Christian is supposed to be focused on pleasing God. As a married couple, you're supposed to be focused on pleasing your spouse. That's how Christianity and that's how marriage works. So what's the point that I'm trying to draw here? The point is this, is that if you want a thriving, lifelong, God-honoring marriage, that Paul expects that you will be intentional about doing the things necessary to grow your marriage in order to please your spouse. And don't miss Paul's concern here. Paul's concern is making sure that they understand that their intentionality in pleasing their spouse, that's going to be in addition to the time spent in pleasing God. Being single and being married, both are good. Just understand there's this double duty of being married. So how do you take this and how do you bring this home? I mean, how do you apply this here at Rock Point? Well, Paul uses a dividing line to make his point. So let's do the same thing here at Rock Point. What are some of the things that we might do here at Rock Point to please God? Well, one of the things that we do is we spend time with God and we communicate with him. How do we do that? Well, we do it through prayer. We do it through listening to the Holy Spirit and acting on his direction. What about some of the things we might do on this side to please our spouse? Well, intentional couples are focused on communicating and spending time with their spouse. 
Here's two ideas on how to do that. Couch time and date nights. It's couch time. I don't know who told us about this, but early in our marriage, someone said, you need to do this. And it was one of the best marriage habits we ever developed. As I came home from work, as soon as possible, as often as possible, we would sit on the couch for five minutes, 10 minutes, no longer than 15 minutes, and just reconnect. We practiced into me, you see. And I know, guys, that we, we say to ourselves, man, I don't even know what that looks like. I mean, you know, well, I know, I'm one. I've got a whole list of questions to get us started. You're going to get one of these when you, when you leave today. What about this idea of date night? Well, what you see in the research is intentional couples, they continue through all seasons of life to focus on having fun and friendship. God gave us a companion, and it's really important. So you can go outside at the end of the service, and we have some examples of some of the date night packets that we give at all of the quarterly date nights that we do here. Why? Because it's important. Rock Point is also a serving church. Some of the things we do to please God, there's a whole list here. How about serving our spouse? What does serving our spouse look like? Well, I think serving sometimes means doing things sacrificially, even if you don't feel like it. Why? Because you highly value someone. Two areas I think that spouses can serve each other better is in the bedroom and out of the bedroom. What does that look like for husbands It means we need to practice more into me, you see. We need to allow, we need to communicate with our spouses and allow them inside. Guys, please, please, I'm begging you, man. Stop sending your wife out the door emotionally and relationally hungry. You may go, I don't know what that means. Ask her, she'll tell you, I promise. Ladies, what does it mean for you? It means practicing more intimacy, being more physically available, more responsive. Ladies, I'm begging you, please, please stop sending your husbands out the door sexually hungry. Well, what else do we do here? We read God's word. Not only do we read God's word, that's, that's the theme for the year. We're reading through God's word, but James says it well. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Well, how about on the other side here? What do we do here? Well, you can read Ted's words and do what it says. It's a thin little book. It was written for us guys. It's packed with intentional things to help us grow our marriage. I have copies outside at the information kiosk. Go pick one up. Lastly, what do we do? Pleasing God around here. We ask from time to time, Lord, how am I doing here? Will you please show me my own sin? How about our, in our own marriage? One of the most risky things I have done in our marriage is to periodically, I ask Edie, could you please tell me how am I doing? What's it like to be married to me? And you know what? Sometimes I don't like the answer that I get. Sometimes I've shifted to me. So can I encourage you to do something? Can I encourage you to share with your spouse the three mental scores that you gave your marriage this morning? If you'd like to go deeper, you can take an online assessment. It's called the Couples Checkup, and it's at this URL on the website. 
Well, my question for you as a married person is simply this. If Paul looked at all of the things that you've been doing to be intentional about pleasing your spouse, would he look at that list and go, see, this is exactly what I was talking about. Look at all these things that you're doing here in addition to pleasing God. Or would he look at your list and would he say, wow, I mean, quite frankly, I'm a little surprised that you don't have much on your list. No, you see, Paul didn't give us a generic list, but I think as a part of the reason why he expected us to be a student of our spouse, Paul would want to know, what's on your list? No matter how long you've been married, if you aren't being intentional about growing your marriage, or as Paul says, about pleasing your spouse, you are putting the vision of having a thriving, lifelong, God-honoring marriage at significant risk. The research says so. God's Word says so. And I'll tell you, the longer you go, the higher the probability is, is that one day, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to realize that this, this wall has gradually developed between you and your spouse. If you haven't, if that hasn't happened yet in your marriage, man, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, please don't let it happen. Please be intentional about your marriage. If it already has happened, I'm pleading with you, I'm begging you, please do three things. The first is simply this, you need to hang on. You need to remember your vows and allow your vows to carry you across this very difficult period in your marriage. Number two, you need to sit down and you need to tell your spouse how you rated your marriage and what the future looks like for you. And number three, you need to go for help. Both of you need to go for help on how to be intentional and how to rebuild your marriage. Where do you find help? Our contact information is on the website. We have a list of, of counselors as well. But for many of us, Our first stop should be in the biblical community that we call small groups here at Rock Point. Over and over, I've seen the power of the gospel heal and transform broken marriages where two people commit to do whatever it takes to rebuild. Please don't let this poem describe your future. Be intentional. Be committed. Practice your promise over a lifetime. Their wedding picture mocked them from the table. These two whose minds no longer touched each other. They live with such a heavy barricade between them that neither battering ram of words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unraveled that tangled ball of string called self. And as they tugged at stubborn knots, Each hid his searching from the other. Sometimes she cried at night. 
and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her, snoring like a hibernating bear, unaware of her very real winter. Once, after they had made love, he wanted to tell her how afraid he was of dying. But fearing to show his naked soul, he spoke instead about the beauty of her breasts. She took a course in modern art, trying to find herself in the colors splashed upon a canvas while complaining to the other women about men who are insensitive. He climbed into a tomb called The Office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of paper figures, and then buried himself in customers. Slowly the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day while reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate. And then recalling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, nor is it when fiery bodies lose their heat. It is when it lies panting, exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. Thank you, Tommy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I know, I know you care about relationships. So much so that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we could have the opportunity to remove the barrier in our relationship with you that our sin has caused. Lord, for all of us, I pray, please search me. Please test me. Please show me. What is it like to be married to me? Thank you for the grace and forgiveness you've given me through Christ. Lord, help me to pass that undeserved grace and forgiveness on to my spouse. I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will soften hearts here that have hardened and give hope to the weary. Help each one of us to see and remove any barriers that separate us from our spouse. Lord, please help us to have a thriving, not a surviving, but a lifelong marriage that's honoring and glorifying to you. Amen.